Hi everyone. You're listening to Witch Hassle. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Allison C. Meyer. Allison is a journalist and a leader of Cemetery Tours, and we had a long talk about the symbolism one finds in cemeteries, about the architecture, and just about the place that cemeteries occupy in our culture and also in the physical landscape, especially in a, in a big metropolitan region like New York City. It was a great chat, and I'm really excited to bring it to you, so we're going to do a super quick Plague Magic Minute. Listeners to the show will know that for the rest of the year, Witch Hassle has committed to doing a little bit of Plague Magic every episode, so you have some metaphysical resources to sprinkle on top of whatever other health measures you are employing to protect yourself from the ongoing coronavirus emergency. And today's Plague Magic Minute comes to us from the great Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, R.I.P. And this comes from his second book of occult philosophy. He writes, From the operations of the sun, they made an image at the hour of the sun, the first face of Leo ascending with the sun, the form of which was a king crowned, sitting in a chair, having a raven in his bosom and under his feet a globe. He is clothed in saffron-colored clothes. They report that this image rendereth men invincible and honorable, and helps to bring their businesses to a good end, and to drive away vain dreams, also to be prevalent against fevers and the plague. And they made it in a balanite stone or a ruben at the hour of the sun, when it in his exaltation fortunately ascendeth and so you know this is a thing to do when the sun is entering the first decan of leo which it won't be doing for some time but i i suspect that coronavirus will still be a problem when the sun enters the first decan of leo again uh i don't i don't have a lot of optimism for the um experimental drugs that they have given our our big wet president though they have certainly improved his outlook a little bit on the world he's gone from from sort of normal egomania to asserting things like i saw recently he called into a television show to say that he is a perfect physical specimen and extremely young and also that california is pumping fresh water into the ocean to help the fish there so you know whatever drugs they're giving him i don't know what they're doing for his corona but they certainly seem to be uh, a lot of fun so about this magical operation so we are told that these are carved either into a balanite stone or a ruben. Now, a ruben is a ruby, so that's that's pretty straightforward. A balanite stone is a little less clear. Um, Donald Tyson, in his edition of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy, points to the possibility that um, a balanite is the same here as referenced in Pliny, where Pliny says, of balanites... There are two kinds, the one of a greenish hue and the other like Corinthian bronze in appearance. The former comes from Coptos and the latter from Traglodytica. They are both of them intersected by a flame-like vein which runs through the middle. But uh, Tyson also points to the Chambers Cyclopedia Supplement of 1753, which suggests that this might be referring to Lapis Judaicus, 
or chewstone, which in turn is of two kinds, the fossil spine of a large sea urchin found in Syria that was used medicinally, particularly against kidney stones, and marcasite, which is iron pyrites of a silver color. Um, I guess it could be those stones, though I actually, when I was looking into it, I came across a tree called Balanitis aegyptiaca, which is known by the less scientific name of Egyptian balsam, and that actually has a fruit with a stone in the fruit, in the same way that, you know, a peach has a stone in the center of the peach, that sort of thing. And so it is conceivable that it is referring to that stone. I mean, perhaps very unlikely, though apparently uh, that stone has been used medicinally, or at least the fruit has been used medicinally, to help with headache and also to improve lactation for nursing mothers. So that's uh, not exactly what we're after, but pretty cool all the same. So anyway, that's been your Plague Magic Minute. If you have a hot tip about Plague Magic that you think is fun or effective or would just like to have discussed on this show, by all means, drop me a line at witchhassle on Instagram or Twitter or at my personal little email address cooper.wilhelm at gmail.com and I'll be very excited and grateful to look into it and potentially talk about it on a future episode of this very witch hassle so let's move on to the interview um Allison Meyer was a joy to talk to uh she is a journalist and she has done a great deal of research into the symbolism that one finds in cemeteries, the history of cemeteries, and also spirit photography, and, and a number of other subjects. So she was a was a joy to talk to, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. You give professional tours of cemeteries. How did that How did that start? Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, you know, I didn't go to college for that, obviously, but I I've been a writer and a journalist longer than I've been a cemetery tour guide and they're kind of linked in a way because I'm always interested in history and storytelling and when I moved to New York over a decade now um, ago I I just sort of ended up living near Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn which is beautiful gorgeous Victorian burial ground and I was just really fascinated with it and also they have a really robust amazing program there but it was I felt like there were stories that weren't being told so that interested me and it kind of started I used to work for a company called Atlas Obscura and when they did one of their Obscura days while I was involved with it was my first time to like ever lead a tour for anything and I definitely didn't think it was going to be more than a one-off but it's been interesting to me how people have continued to be interested in cemeteries like especially with my focus on symbolism there seems to be a lot of fascination and kind of like discovering these things and so over the years like it's been an excuse to research which I love um, get out it's different parts of the city I might not explore otherwise and yeah it just um Somehow, now I'm doing it virtually, which I never foresaw either, but we're kind of in a new world right now. 
So in terms of doing this virtually, are you are you walking through the cemetery with your phone out sort of pointing to different things or is it more sort of like a class setting? Yeah, it. Um, I think so. I have um, a couple of different things. I've done some of the they call them like happy hours with Greenwood Cemetery where I do most of my tours, although not all. And those have been kind of more virtual tours like focusing on Greenwood although I am at home while I'm doing them I don't trust my uh phone signal to do one of those walking tours although that, w- that might be fun for the future and they're a little bit more kind of like presentations and then I also do them with the Brooklyn Brainery which I already did a in-person cemetery symbols class for them before the pandemic so this is like a virtual version but the beauty of doing things online is like you know my audience used to only be people in new york and now anyone can join and so that's given me a reason and excuse to expand these discussions beyond new york like using examples elsewhere in the country even around the world and so that's been fun to rethink these experiences too. How how regionalized are the sorts of symbols that you find in, say, Greenwood or New York Cemetery? Are they are they universal or are they very sort of, you know, tri-state area? Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm I'm originally from Oklahoma and while we have 19th century cemeteries, they're very much like pioneer cemeteries where people were sometimes making their own tombs out of concrete, even maybe wood that didn't survive. And here in New York, there's stuff going back to like the oldest gravestone in Manhattan. That's from, I believe, 1681 for a five-year-old boy named Richard Churcher. And it has a big skull on the back and an hourglass. And those are symbols that like you used to see a lot in like colonial graveyards, but they started in Europe with like, England and Vanitas traditions and all those symbols of Memento Mori. So colonists brought those over. So you tend to see those in places that were part of the colonial Americas, whereas like Oklahoma or like, you know, further west, you're not going to see as much of that. And now our symbolism tends to be a little bit more universal just because like also in the 1800s, you wouldn't have had like a tombstone maker you would have just gone to the local stone carver and they would have made you something and so there was a lot more regional expression in earlier times than now about in the late 19th century people start mass producing stuff and that's when you get kind of like the set imagery you get like sears catalog selling tombstones so that stuff is is uh it's interesting to track because there's definitely regional flavor and there's like a little bit of like not to talk exclusively about Oklahoma, <laughs> but like in a, in a state that's a little bit more conservative, you're not going to see as many like pyramids or temples or sort of pagan stuff as you might in New York. And even here, you'll often see that like tempered a little bit with a big cross on it. So it's kind of interesting too, to look at like what's considered, you know, acceptable in certain places and what isn't. So what would have been the draw of having something like a giant pyramid or some other or maybe like an obelisk or some other kind of explicitly pagan symbol Mm -hmm. as someone's marker is it is it because of a sort of gesture toward a kind of paganism or is it something else i wish it was i wish there was like a lot of secret 
pagan worshippers in 19th century New York, but it was more like there's been, you know, Europeans and white Americans have been very good at appropriating different cultures. And there are a few different phases of Egyptomania with like the Napoleonic campaigns in the 18th century. And then when King Tutankhamun's tomb was found in 1922. And so with those people get this like fascination with that kind of imagery and how it deals with the afterlife. And I think because it coincides like the later Egyptomania with also a lot of wealth and wealthy people in the Gilded Age, like thinking about how they want to build their own grand mausoleums, people end up going a little crazy and building themselves their own pyramid, their own Egyptian style temple. And yet uh, I'm interested in how cemeteries kind of have their own architecture like you really could blend together whatever you want there unlike on a house you wouldn't live inside of like a greek temple that has a renaissance revival top on it but in a cemetery it's like why not you know you build it you build whatever your passion was but not as many people are choosing to build pyramids now which is i guess (laughs) good and sad in some ways that is really a tragedy, though. I did hear that mm-hmm. Nick Cage has done that for himself. So oh, well, he bought that one. So he, oh. had, yeah. I, I don't know if he still owns it. Was someone else in there when he bought it? No. <laughs> yeah, I think it was empty when he bought it. It's in um, uh, is it St. Louis number one or two. It's one of those in New Orleans, right? I mean, I think so, but I don't. I really should know before I even bring up Nick Cage's funerary <laughs> preparations. I, really I wish I knew more, too. Yeah. So that actually does bring up an interesting uh, wrinkle in this sort of thing, where my understanding is that there are certain places where maybe only the most recent person is actually in a tomb in a family, and mm. everyone else is sort of, their remains are moved to a secondary location. Um, oh, like know, in New Orleans, yeah. I'm, I mean, it, I think it varies across cultures, but is that the sort of thing that you would find, say, in a big cemetery like Greenwood? Not as much here. That's a kind of un-American way to be buried. Like, other cultures are much more comfortable, like an ossuary system where, yeah, like, you might be interred kind of in this individual space, but once your body decays and you are a skeleton, then your bones might be moved to a more communal space. But we are a little bit squeamish here with like skeletons and having our bones all jumbled up together. So in Greenwood, since that was established in 1838 and has been operating up until today, it very much is like in this Victorian model of burial where everyone's getting their own space. Like there are shared mausoleums definitely in crypts, but there's not like ossuaries where you're you're putting people in together and it would definitely be a space saver like in New York. And I think when a place like that was established, you know, we, we both live in Brooklyn, like that used to be rural space, but there's the city has built up around there. And so I think we're at an interesting moment of thinking about like what we're going to do with places like this that were designed for a very different city than what we have now. This leads me to wonder something. You, you, so you mentioned that, that Greenwood is sort of in a, a Victorian tradition mm-hmm. of cemeteries. And it sounds like this idea of each person gets their own 
Thrones face is sort of a, a Victorian way of doing things. Were, would you say that the American sort of contemporary cemetery is very much a, a Victorian sort of holdover? Were, were cemeteries in America quite different before the Victorian era? Yeah, and I think we're still, we haven't had as radical a shift in our death practices as America did in the 19th century. Like before then, most people were buried in churchyards or on their family farm, or, I mean, that is, if you're white, Protestant, wealthy, Um, other people were buried in potter's fields or marginalized spaces. But as the cities like New York, especially developed, those small graveyards got built over a lot of the times or relocated. And that's really when this thing called the rural cemetery movement takes off, where city planners are looking to the edges of the city, to just outside the city, to find bigger places for burial and not just like finding a new burial ground, but creating a cemetery, which was kind of a new idea and word at the time. It used to be you got buried in the burying ground, but then with the cemetery, they are setting up these more like garden-like spaces. Um, Greenwood is an excellent example, but the first one was Mount Auburn in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I believe opens in 1831, so a little bit before Greenwood. But it really sets off this trend here that's building on places in Europe like Père Lachaise in Paris or Highgate in London. And looking at these places of death being as much about like having a kind of bucolic experience in nature with beauty, thinking about the afterlife, whereas those old colonial cemeteries packed with like skulls and flying hourglasses were almost like a compliment kind of to your church experience where you go out into the burial ground and you see all these skulls, you have this reminder that your death is imminent, you you should be thinking about your final destination, your judgment. And in the 19th century, we, we really start to get away from that. And I think now there were some different movements in the 20th century, like, like more the lawn, flat cemeteries with small granite stones, definitely a rise of cremation. But our burial spaces are still very much modeled on that. 19th century movement and so would that mean then that cemeteries that 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 cemeteries that appear not cemeteries sorry because that is a a specific term so um burying grounds that one would find say in a major metropolitan region before then and were potentially moved is that would that mean that if you go into a lot of cities there are just a lot of places that maybe perhaps are not marked but had some kind of small graveyard in them at some point yeah yeah for sure (laughs) like manhattan right now are there just like a ton of old former graveyards or maybe small remaining graveyards that just don't have a lot of fanfare indicating that they're there yeah um that is completely true like you know like the poltergeist thing where they only move the headstones that happened in new york like there were graveyards that were thoughtfully reinterred elsewhere, but there were also places where, because, um, you know, at, at the time, say it's like 1835, your family's buried there, the church puts out a call, like, hey, we're going to move the cemetery, you got to come get your grandfather, like, you might have moved away, your family might have died out, all these things that, or you just don't want to do that. And so one example is James J. Walker Park uh, on the west side. It's a 
basically like a playground now. It has like some ball fields and stuff. But if you go there, you'll see this marble monument that you can see just inside the fence. And it has some old timey like firefighting equipment on it and that is a tombstone and if you go up to it it basically tells you like this is a burial ground there are still people buried under here and that's also true with a place like uh, Washington Square Park still has interments it used to be a potter's field the African burial ground in lower Manhattan which was you know we can say rediscovered but it's been on maps that we could easily see in the archives so these places aren't necessarily forgotten they've just been overlooked and they are places like the African burial ground where people were marginalized in both life and death. And when it came to developing in that area, there wasn't a lot of consideration given to the dead. Is there much of a movement now to try to honor these spaces or perhaps reinter these bodies respectfully somewhere else? Or is it sort of and being, you know, this is all just too far in the past. We can't be trying to correct all these all these issues. Because I imagine a lot of people might be troubled by the idea that if they go to Washington Square Park, they're they're walking over graves unknowingly. Yeah, it's interesting. I I used to lead a walking tour called "This Used to Be a Cemetery," and it was about that. And and you might think people would be surprised. I think I don't know. I think people in New York just assume there's stuff beneath them maybe but yeah Washington Square Park when they were renovating it recently there were remains found there was a whole tombstone found and it's it was in the news you know it was on the in the New York Times so people know but not like a sign when you go there whereas um like down at uh the Brooklyn Navy Yard like they have the Naval Cemetery landscape and it doesn't look anything like a cemetery, but when you go up to it, it says this is a cemetery. So there's a lot of like ways people have approached this. And I think there is more of a consideration now, especially with like the visibility from the African burial ground, really significant. Like and it was a big grassroots movement to get that space memorialized, but the remains are still there. So there hasn't been as much of like an effort to reinter sites like that as much as there has been to give them any sort of recognition and there's some um i believe there's a the harlem bus depot right now is a site that has remains it's being kind of like considered in that way uh the second african burial ground does not have any sort of memorial it's near the new museum and houston street but yeah these places and it's not just new york it's like any big city that had burial grounds in its center probably likely has some remains of them. And I'm not, I don't think we should like dig up all the sidewalks and knock down the skyscrapers and like get all the bones out because that's just kind of part of life is that things go on. But I think there should be more of an effort, particularly when there are places that were created because of segregation or things like that. I think that we should think about why they aren't memorialized in the same way a place like Greenwood Cemetery is. If someone wanted to, maybe not even just in New York, but I don't know, somewhere out in these United States or even in, in, in another country, if they wanted to try to research where these sorts of sites might be, where they live, are there some good go-to resources for them to look at? I mean, I love the library, so it's always a great place to go. Uh, there's um, the David Rumsey map collection is 
excellent for the New York area at least. Any sort of like old map of the city, it's kind of interesting just to look and see if the burial grounds were marked and like what might be there now. That's how I've researched like that tour I mentioned where we looked at the burial grounds, but it can be tricky sometimes because cemetery records themselves are very rarely digitized and they also aren't always cared for in the way they should be. So it's getting a little bit better now. I know Greenwood has an initiative underway to do some digitizing for their records, which are really extensive and excellent resource. But yeah, I think like go go to the cemetery, see if they records. If they don't, I guess to get back to kind of like the symbolism thing, like what interests me about symbols is like sometimes that is the last record of a person's name. And so you can interpret a lot from itself about the person, but you're asking more about like these kind of forgotten spaces. And I think that's, it's really just like an archival investigation into um, seeing any views of the city before it looked like what it does today. And actually moving on to, to the symbols and motifs and so on, are these, are the, are the symbols that you typically find on a tombstone, is there sort of a, a precise meaning that they're attempting to convey a lot of the time, or is it usually just something in the general idea of like gesturing toward memento mori or <laughs> towards the consolation of a particular conception of the afterlife, or is it something sort of more specific? Yeah, I think like you said, the the memento mori symbolism, there's a ton of stuff that basically means either this person's dead uh, or you should think about that you're going to die next or this person is dead, but they're not really dead because they're in the afterlife, like with inverted torches, eternal flames, ivy that's like evergreen plants, those kind of things. But some symbols do have like a specific meaning. For example, Victorians were really into the language of flowers, so that same symbolism made it into the cemeteries too. So like, there's a lot of lilies because they are one of the first flowers to bloom in spring, and so they have a symbolism of rebirth. There's also a lot of roses, and if you look closely, some of them would either be falling off of a rose bush or their stem might be snapped. And if they're slightly in bloom, it's likely for a young woman. If there's still a bud, it was probably a child that died. Uh, so there's symbols like that. There's also, there's not as many animals as I was like would like, because that'd be fun. But you will see kind of like some guardian dogs or that could memorialize actual family dogs. Uh, lambs are almost always for children. But I mentioned that uh, commercialization that comes about in the 19th century. So like, although every symbol starts with some sort of meaning, you know, by the time it ends up in the Sears catalog, some people might be like, I don't know, I just, I, I like a lotus flower, I'm, but I, I'm not thinking about that I'm interested in creating my own Egyptian theme too. And we still have some of that today. Like you can definitely still get symbols on your tombstone but I don't think when you're in the funeral parlor they're they're asking you about what kind of like symbolism you want in there but they do have like connections to different histories to cultures to how old a person was whether their life had a chance to you know blossom or whether it was cut short and you'll see that with like maybe a broken off column or a tree stump 
they can have a lot of different meanings. So like, you know, a tree stump, it could be in a life cut short, but I've also seen one that said he loved nature on it. So it's always worth like taking a closer look, but they can be a good gateway into that person's story. Uh, so I actually, I'm, I'm curious about the, the torches. Cause I feel like this is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but like would inverted as opposed to torches that are pointing upwards, would these have different meanings? What is the sort of language of the torch as a symbol? Yeah, I know there's some, I've seen some different interpretation. What I believe is that the inverted one, it's like your your life has ended, your flame has been upended, but it is defying reality, continuing to burn because you are still living on some other plane that we can't see and it doesn't follow the rules of this world when they're upright i think they can have a similar meaning but i think it tends to be a little bit more maybe like tied with um you know symbol of hope or the spirit but it could also be an eternal i've heard that like upended torches that don't have the flame mean a life extinguished but i haven't seen that very often it is it seems like kind of a a downer of a symbol, so it's probably why people didn't pick it that often. But that is a symbol that I you don't really see it anywhere outside of cemeteries, and it's it's interesting how popular it was to kind of convey that message over and over again. I don't want this to turn into into me just peppering you. With <laughs> what is it? I mean, it's, it's it's good for it's good for uh, my mind to see if I remember all these things too. But the, the and but with that caveat. Um, a few more, if I could, yeah, um, just because you know, I I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. It's right. it's if there's nothing wrong with it. I see a lot of orbs mm-hmm. when I'm in cemeteries, just like a sort of smooth stone sphere. Is that just sort of an architectural motif, or is that actually supposed to communicate some particular thing? That's a good question because I have I have I've heard a few different things about that one too. Because I think in some obviously like you know so circles have a really long ancient connection with eternity so i think that could be playing into it i think also um, sometimes symbols get like a little bit distilled and i've seen those orbs with wings i think are like an abstracted version of an old winged soul that you'd see in a colonial graveyard but here it's kind of been turned into like something else or it could be referred to like a sun disk that you would see above an Egyptian temple, like borrowing all these different things into the cemetery. And then I think there's also maybe something showing off a little bit, like it's not easy to carve a perfect circle in granite. I mean, orb in granite. So you'd be like, I got this beautiful object. I got it all the way to the cemetery at a time when we don't have cars. So you're, you're also showing that you have some level of wealth by maybe the size of your, um, your orb, so to speak. <laughs> I like that, that that started sort of Ozymandias and then like <laughs> switched to something a bit more um, a bit more phallic. Um, so I've also seen a lot of cemeteries where you'll see a number of tombstones that have an urn on top of the tombstone, even though arguably, like it seems as though that would be a reference to cremation, but we are in a place where bodies are buried. Is that is that the general gist or is it something else, do you think? Yeah, as you you made a very good observation that it is strange to see an urn in a place where I'd say at the time probably the majority of people were not being cremated. So it is purely this symbol. 
And urns really start to appear at American graveyards, like kind of after the revolution when the United States is declaring itself to be the new republic and it's adopting a lot of classical imagery. Like you can even see old depictions of George Washington, like wearing a toga and stuff. So that becomes popular, but it also, um, it usually in a cemetery, it's not just an urn. It has this like drapery on it. And in the Victorian age, it was pretty common when somebody died, you would drape your whole home in black, you know, veil everything. And so it's that sign of mourning and respect. Um, I've also heard that veil referred to as like kind of the boundary between the living and the dead. But it's a very evocative symbol of mourning, too. And I think because it it is very um, symbolic of death, but also that the body has gone in this very dramatic way but in the victorian cemetery you would interpret that as although this body has become ash become dust the soul is still surviving somewhere else that's marvelous um so i actually i i put out a call before our chat to Mm -hmm. people might be listening to this this program and might have specific questions for you and i i got one in that i wanted to put to you if i could um which is, do you, can you say anything about the specific sort of symbolism that one might find in a Jewish cemetery as opposed to something that, that is following a more Christian or sort of semi-pagan set of symbols? Yeah, there's. I'm looking actually on my coffee table, there's a book called Graven Images specifically about Jewish symbolism. Because I, I should say, like, as I mentioned, I am a journalism major, so I come at this all from a research angle, so I'm certainly not the um, end-all expert in any of this. And because my focus has been mainly on 19th century cemeteries like Greenwood, it does have a a specific viewpoint that was dominant at that time, which, again, white Protestant men. But it's interesting to go, especially in the New York City area, to Jewish cemeteries from the 19th century. There's a really beautiful one along the A train called Bayside Cemetery that's actually wedged between two other Jewish cemeteries. I know one is like Acacia. I'm blanking on the other's name. But if you go into it, it doesn't look like what you might expect a Jewish cemetery to look like if you've been to a lot of them, which can be... Um, they feel very crowded, like with the uniform tombstones. Instead, you actually see urns, you see mausoleums, because people were identifying with those same traditions at that same time. And if you go way back to, there is a very rare survivor in New York City from the colonial era, which is the first Sheriff Israel Cemetery in Chinatown. And that's also a Jewish cemetery. I believe it's the oldest in the United States. The person who asked this question should Google that to confirm that fact. But it also doesn't look that different from other colonial cemeteries. It has the same kind of headstones, except that they might have names in Hebrew. And it has really, I think it reinforces the fact that America has, from its very beginning, been a religious diverse place and to see that there are these traditions still surviving in our burial grounds where we can witness that I think it's important and this isn't answering the question directly just just a soapbox I wanted to get on but there are distinct symbolists 
in all of these. And each of these cemeteries has a person like me who's probably leading tours, who is uh, caring for the place. And I would recommend, like, go there, see if, like, you can find them. And I'm sure that they could share the symbols. But there are specific religious symbols for different religions. It's just that because Christianity has been so dominant in the United States, that tends to be the most prominent in our cemeteries. So these these spaces, cemeteries these days, especially following this Victorian model of, of a place that is bucolic, they tend to be some of the the longest lasting green spaces. Yeah. Is there anything to be gleaned from what plants are planted in these spaces? Like the trees, for example, are they are they there for symbolic value a lot of the time? Or is it just sort of, you know, this would be a nice tree to have here. <laughs> I think it's a little bit, it was a little bit of both when they first opened. So there was definitely symbolic plantings in the 19th century. Whether those have survived until now is, is not a always sure but like you'll see a lot of evergreen plants because those are green in winter so you have that symbolism of eternity but they are were similar in that way too you know when central park opens and prospect park they were not planting for like what's the best native environment that's going to sustain itself for centuries they were like what are the, the trees we want here and let's meticulously place them around to have these beautiful vistas. And so the cemeteries, because they are influencing the parks movement and in turn the parks movement influences them, they tended to have the same kind of plantings. Although now, so we are in this time of climate change and places like Greenwood are now having to consider like how do you maintain and have a flourishing landscape into the 20th century, 21st century. And so they are planting trees like live oaks, like traditionally southern trees, to see if they will survive because they are losing like European beech trees that don't do as well in humidity. So there's a lot of different considerations that go into them. And like you pointed out, they are sometimes the last green space in a neighborhood like Greenwood Cemetery. It doesn't really it's near Sunset Park, but it doesn't have a huge park like directly in that neighborhood. So if you live by that cemetery it's kind of like your outdoor space and they're very welcoming to people like not to like extremes of like coming in and um, having parties but they definitely welcome people for respectful recreation and I think that's wonderful if a cemetery can do that I know not every cemetery can due to security due to fears of vandalism to all these things but I think there's a way to engage your community in the space even if they don't have anyone buried there because of that role of green space and I think you can open up those dialogues like about why these plants were planted about why you're planting what you can plant now and it can be like an interesting pathway to just talk about nature in the city and shifting a little bit away from away from human cemeteries for a moment <laughs> talk for a minute about the big the big pet cemetery up in Westchester oh Hartsdale yeah yeah what? What kinds of animals are buried there? Because I'm going to understand there's something of a variety. It is, it's like basically any animal anyone has ever had for a pet could, you can find in a pet cemetery. So Hartsdale, definitely a lot of cats and dogs, very lovingly buried. 
but they also have like um, a lion cub is buried there. I've seen an iguana's grave. There are all sorts of animals buried there, and it's very sweet. I thought the first time I went there would be like the most depressing place in the world because I was like, what is sadder than a pet cemetery? But it's like you you have what well, I mean you should like bury your parents. Um, but you don't have to bury your dog. And so the people that choose to do so just put so much love into every single monument there. Like there is not a monument that's just a yeah, a name and some dates usually. It's like it has just dog toys have been left there or people like have put really sweet epitaph. It's very sweet to see to see like a cat's grave that said "We miss you, Satan," because that was the cat's name, and it, and to have it feel like very heartfelt, or to see someone that had like um like similar to the Simpsons, like it's like four different cats named Snowball or something, and you're like, wow, they really every time they got a new cat, they still loved it. They still made sure it was part of this memorial, and that space was created because. New York didn't allow people to be buried with their pets. And so there are even people there. You can't be buried in a pet cemetery if, if you're not with your pet. I don't know who would choose to do that. But they allow people to be buried there if their pet is there. And so there's a few, there's at least one monument where the pets are buried below in the earth, but the humans have chosen to have their urn on top of the tombstone. And it's, it's very sweet because it's like, it's nice that people loved their animals so much that they wanted to be not just with them, but in this whole cemetery full of animals. And I, yeah, I, I, I've done a couple of tours there, but they also just really have wonderful programming on their own. Like they have an annual war dog memorial event and I recommend going there. It's a really easy trip on Metro North, really nice place to walk around. Just, uh, you'll, you'll spend hours there just wanting to read every single tombstone. Um, are there any any sort of animal-specific burial traditions that you're aware of in places like that? For example, I think I read something on your site that when a, when a horse is buried, they don't bury the entire horse, but only select body parts. Right. I think... Morbid about this. <laughs> I think it just... I think it's more... Not, not as a disrespect to the horse, but as a... It would, it would be just quite a task, I think, to bury the entire horse. So usually, um, I believe, and this is a good year, year to um, kind of jog my brain about this. I believe with the horse, they bury their, they buried like their heart and their hooves and their head, at least for racehorses. Because I think that's how Far Lab might be buried the fit. It's, I'm going really off my memory right now, but there are definitely racehorses that have been buried like that. So if you're in Hartsdale Pet Cemetery, for example, and you see a headstone for a horse, there's not like probably the entire horse under there, but it's uh, it's it's just a space-saving measure. I'm sure if we were as big as horses, our cemeteries would be a lot roomier because we would choose to, to have that space. But um, well, then the whole world would be much bigger. But that yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just find pet cemeteries to be really fascinating. Um, my friend Paul Kudinaris, who's a photographer, has spent a lot of time photographing them. And he's talked about how they're like a form of folk art because you're really taking this human tradition, adapting it for a completely new purpose and just really making these extraordinary spaces that are just so full of, of 
love, but it's beautiful. That is really lovely. Um, especially because I feel like pet cemeteries seem much more unregulated by traditions or norms because, of course, one's relationship with one's pet is, is much more, I don't know, private or something like that. Um, have you... We, we've talked a little bit about the idea that, that tombstones have become much more uniform or um, standardized with sort of mass commercialization and the Sears catalog and things like that. Has there also been an increase in um, the sort of just regulations that come into cemeteries? For example, like I, I'm in when you were talking about that idea of like, oh, mixing, you know, Gothic uh, or Renaissance architecture with with Greek revival architecture. Like I, I imagine, if there was some kind of housing association in the graveyard, they might object to that or something <laughs> like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think one of the big changes has been a little bit practical, where like a lot of 19th century monuments were made of marble, which is a really hard stone to maintain out in the open air because it's porous and it gets kind of like a a sugaring effect that blurs like the original carving so some cemeteries don't allow certain materials anymore and i know there's uh for that reason this artist patricia cronin who's who's still very much alive but she did this art project in new york called memorial to a marriage that was originally going to be in marble and it shows her and her wife now wife deborah kess in bed together and she created it before same-sex marriage was legal and so the idea was going to be not just a memorial to them but the marriage that they wouldn't get to have until same-sex marriage got legalized but she wanted this to be marble and so because Greenwood doesn't allow marble she ended up installing it at Woodlawn in the Bronx which is much more flexible with its materials so there are regulations like that that are influencing where people decide to be uh, in turn or put our projects, I guess, although that will be her grave at some point. I, it's now replaced actually with a bronze version that she's kind of hoping wears down because people will come and touch it in different ways. So that's a change. And there is a little bit of a backlash too against those black granite monuments that people do like laser etching on. <laughs> like some cemeteries aren't into those because I I guess they like look a little bit tacky, but I, I think give them a hundred years and people might appreciate them as much as we appreciate like century old marble tombstones. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I was, I was walking through a rural cemetery in Calhoun, Georgia, not too long ago. And I came across a tombstone uh, that had a depiction of, I assume the person who was interred um, fishing on a fishing boat. Nice. Uh, on a creek and i think there was also like a nascar thing happening <laughs> Great. at the same time i can totally see someone you know sticking their nose up at a thing like that now but like a hundred years from now that's just the culture of this time this mysterious time that we live in yeah and i, I love that there are people still taking that kind of time on their memorials because like not a lot of people do now. Are there any sort of funeral practices that you've come across in your research that have kind of fallen out of favor that you you I, wishing they'd come back feels somehow the wrong way to phrase this. <laughs> yeah. Are there any that you would like to maybe you would be pleased to see them come back into style in some way? Yeah, that's I mean, who wouldn't want to be burned on a pyre? But I guess in a more practical answer, I think as I mentioned, like 
there's a real issue in cities with space right now. And I think bringing back the idea of an ossuary could be really interesting in a city like New York because, like, we just don't have a lot of space, but a lot of people want to be buried in New York. It's their home. So if there was something like that where, say, like, you you get a individual burial spot in this New York City ossuary, we'll call it, and then you get added to just this giant catacomb of New Yorkers. I think that could be really cool. I don't know if people would be comfortable with that. And I don't know what kind of city regulations <laughs> would need to pass for such a thing. But I, I like that there are people rethinking death because right now we really don't have a lot of options. It's like I actually did my my will recently, which I should have done a long time ago, of all people, but and it's like, well, do you want to be cremated or buried? And there's not a lot of choices other than that. Like, you can choose a green burial, but there are limited facilities for that. Like, New York, our closest one is uh, Sleepy Hollow, which isn't in the city. And I, I hope that people kind of start rethinking that stuff. There's a company or an organization in Seattle that it's called recompose that is pushing for like letting people turn into soil naturally. And then you could use that soil to like build a community garden and your, or plant a tree or something. And that's not a new idea, like letting someone be buried and then they are just become part of the earth. It's just that it's hard to do that legally right now. And I think while my ossuary dream would be great, I think a more realistic one is to, get more natural burial options within cities where like you don't have to pay for you know sealed casket the tomb liner all these things that are are creating this like very airtight space that's that's uh not gonna let anyone else use that land anymore but if you bury someone in a natural way like another few decades you can bury someone else there and i think Rather than that feeling like a desecration, I think it's a nice way to continue the use of a space to keep it meaningful for a community. Looking back at, at, say, the Victorian era, you have, like, a lot of use of bones or remains as part of a funeral. A funeral. Like, I, I remember seeing funerary art where someone had made basically a diorama of the grave out of the hair of oh, the person cool. who was interred. What changed in America where people are seemingly much more skittish around the physical remains of the dead than than they were, say, 100 years ago. Is it just a fear of contagion, or is it something else? Yeah, that's an interesting note to it right now, but I think you're right. It's like if you were to um, make a diorama out of your grandmother's hair who had just died, people would be concerned for you and they would not think it was a kind gesture probably. But I think a lot of it had to do with removing the actual corpse from our life. So we don't care for the body anymore because we have a funeral system. And I think as soon as we don't, we aren't touching our dead, we already are getting removed from them. And yeah, it wasn't, I think like the fear of contagion is interesting, but I, I think it has to do more with like just death being hidden from us. And it's very timely too, because like here in New York with the astounding number of people that have died in this pandemic, like we couldn't ignore it because the 
ambulances were sounding at all times of day, but in other places where you don't have to see it, you don't have to see the ambulances and know that they are taking your neighbors away. I think that you're able to ignore that death exists in a weird way. So I think that just because it's just not that present in our life and then it becomes like anything related with a corpse becomes very alien. And it's a, you know, I, it's the same, I think with all of us, like we don't really see dead bodies. I'm not, I'm not saying we should show everybody dead bodies, but I think that like the idea of caring for a loved one who has died, washing their body, preparing them for burial, shouldn't feel like a strange thing to do. And I don't know if hair art will, will make a comeback, but I think like recognizing that that's part of loving a person is caring for them in this last moment would be a wonderful change. And not just, you know, so not just in terms of like bringing back Victorian handicrafts, but just making us more connected with that part of our lives. I wonder if that's that's why the sort of idea of the zombie picture became so much more popular. <laughs> years yeah. Confronted with not just death, but like the intimacy of the dead. The idea that you can you can see death with a recognizable face and it's this thing that is not sort of abstracted. In that way. Um, reminds me of yeah, that's interesting. But um, has the experience of going into, I mean, I assume you're not leading in-person tours mm -hmm. during COVID, but has the experience of going into the cemetery changed for you because of COVID? Yeah, that's a, I definitely am not leading tours right now. I know some people have started doing walking tours and I respect there's a, a safe way to do that for, but for me, I, I have not started doing that. It definitely changed. Like Greenwood Cemetery, where I mostly lead tours, where I just go on walks a lot, experienced a huge uptick in burials during the height of the pandemic in New York City. And I could not at that time have the same experience knowing that like the crematorium was operating until you know, very, very late into night to the night. And so I did stop going there for a little while during the pandemic. But I think I've started going there again. And even with that kind of very present connection to this awful moment, it does remind me in some weird, comforting way to see all these people have come before me that lived through all these other terrible times that like this too shall pass and I, I think that that's like important to think about right now because because we're so caught up in like this minute by minute news cycle it seems as if like oh, this, this will never end and I think it's powerful for me to like recognize that my time is finite and that this moment is too and to have this history now part of it just connects us to all the different stories that have happened in New York. This isn't New York's first epidemic. You can go to to Greenwood and find 1918 flu epidemic deaths. And also that uh, that Jewish cemetery I mentioned for Sheriff Israel has a really incredible grave from a yellow fever epidemic from a doctor who cared for people during it. And it has this arm on it coming out of a cloud, cutting a branch off of his tree of life. And to just be able to see that now, like centuries later, and to, to think about 
that history of care in the city. Yeah, I guess to, to answer your question, it definitely has changed my relationship to these spaces, but I, I think it has just reinforced for me how important it is to think about how we're memorializing people like and what relationship these spaces have to our day-to-day lives. That's really a lovely thought. Actually, though, the history of this, I, I felt like that was sort of like a great closing moment, and then I... <laughs> I I feel terrible for doing this, but something about Greenwood in particular is that strikes me is that it is a cemetery that is also the site of a revolutionary war battle. I think Mm -hmm. early one that occurred fairly early on. I I remember hearing something about you know some some legend that the uh, British officers saw one last American getting onto a boat to to flee to Manhattan or, or New Jersey and he had red hair and they're like, oh, that must have been George Washington or something. But um, <laughs> is there, in what ways are you aware of the idea of Greenwood Cemetery as a cemetery interacting with that space also as a, a place of violence and trauma? Was was that part of the idea of placing the cemetery there that this was already sort of a a, a, a place associated with death or was that just sort of a coincidence? How did that, how did that play out? Yeah, I never thought about that. Uh, that's interesting. So it is the site of the Battle of Brooklyn and I'll admit I am not much of a Revolutionary War buff so my understanding of the details of it are, are pretty loose but it, it is a site of one of the first major engagements of the American Revolution and if you go there today there's not just a memorial for that but also for the civil war upon what they call battle hill i don't know though if because it it didn't open with that memorial there it was put in later by this man named charles higgins who was um an ink tycoon he also was a big uh anti-vaxxer pioneer but but i feel like i can't go i mean it's on wikipedia i'll let people get into that but complicated figure as, time, as, time to cancel charles higgins <laughs> Well, it's. I do feel responsible that if I if I say his name on a tour, I'm like I cannot let this pass without bringing up this other thing because it it's just it's crazy how like a hundred years later we have the exact same issues. But so he paid for the statue of Minerva there that's there to commemorate the um, American Revolution, but that was like later on and he put it in because like oh, I can't believe there's not a monument to this so it didn't so much have that connection but it is interesting that that is there that it just happens to be there and I think it has a lot to do with that being the highest natural point in Brooklyn so it wasn't just uh, pivotal in a military sense it was also really desirable for a cemetery that you have these gorgeous vistas to the New York Harbor from there so people have been drawn to that same um, high point, which is not that high, you know, we're in New York City, for both mourning and also battle, and that death has to do with both those things. And yeah, that is like a really fascinating point to bring up. Well, um, I think that's sort of it for, for I think, the time that we have, because I don't want to, I don't want to take up so much of your time. But if people, well, yeah. <laughs> If people want to uh, to find out more about you and the work you're doing, and of course about this class that you're doing in a few days, where should they go? What should they do? Sure. I guess if you want, so I don't just, despite the fact I could probably talk to you about cemeteries for a good 12 more hours, I don't just do cemetery stuff. I'm also an arts and culture writer, but you can find a lot of my writing at my website, which is Allison C. Meyer 
www.ashleyhoffman.com. And then I'm doing, um, I'm doing two upcoming things. So I have a talk with the Brooklyn Brainery later this month. And that is on, I really should have pulled this up on my screen first, right? That is coming. And then the, the one at Greenwood Cemetery is before it. So the Brooklyn Brainery one is on October 15th. So that's next Thursday. And then the Greenwood Cemetery Happy Hour, I believe, is later in the month. Um, but both of those are coming up, and I'll, I'll share them on my website under my Cemetery Tours tab. And then also um, I'm on you know Twitter and all the things where I should post them there, too. But yeah, and I have a mailing list for my cemetery tours, although it's mostly turned into my online talks. So hopefully it will start posting tours again sometime soon. But oh yeah, Greenwood Cemetery, October 20th, 6 p.m. So I have a talk on the 15th, talk on the 20th. If I was more of a professional, I would have had those both up on my computer. But there we go. Amazing. Um Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was a joy for me. Yeah, and hope to see you and any of your listeners out in the cemetery soon. You know, even though I'm not doing tours, I, I cannot recommend enough that, like, it's so beautiful right now in fall. Like, just go for a walk in your local cemetery, whether it's, like, the incredible Victorian cemetery nearby or just, like, a small one. Like, it's a it's a nice way to learn about history wherever you are and, get out of nature in an unexpected way so i thought that was the end of the interview and it was but then we kept talking and some interesting things came up and i was still recording so um here's a super duper bonus round on that interview sort of way i don't know it's it's strange even just looking at like the afterlife of a cemetery because i mean i was someone someone told me at one point that i should go check out the grave of uh what's oh god what's his name william pool the uh the bill oh, the butcher, bill the butcher yeah. New York and i and it's it was a strange moment because it's you know someone i i didn't know that well said you should go check him out and i was like why and he's like you should it's something about you you should go to his grave and so i was like okay fine I will do this on on your suggestion. And I went and it was it's such a strange thing to behold because it was very clear that there was a tombstone for him that had been installed oh, yeah. within the last like four or five years. Like there was like nowhere on it whatsoever. Probably You're completely right. Yes. They after Gangs of New York came out, they're like, We gotta get this guy a headstone. People keep asking about him. But there was also like a headstone next to it that was weathered beyond any kind of legibility and just sort of having that moment of recognition of like oh they just he just had a tombstone they just got him a new one yeah this movie which is such a strange idea that the dead can have this kind of not revival exactly because they're still dead but this kind of idea of like the nature of their of their memory changes so dramatically yeah cemetery i don't know i'm sorry i feel like i'm i'm sounding off like a like a dude in a college seminar who's just like, I have nothing to do with it. Maybe I'll write a paper. I don't, yeah. I would, I, I, it sounds like a great, if you feel like writing a college seminar paper about that. Um, yeah, it's, I love that grave too, because there was no way that when he died, they would have put Bill the Butcher on his like street gang nickname. But because that's why people are going to that grave, it's like William Poole, quotation mark, Bill the Butcher, 
this is it's like no mistaking why you're here yeah that's a that's a strange one but I yeah that's you know I I can talk about cemeteries endlessly (laughs) so they're just really fascinating places if you ever want to come back on, I'd love to have you. I just need to think of more questions. <laughs> Actually, one more question, if I might, just because out of curiosity, and I have I have you on the line, I might as well, if it's okay. Um, this isn't for the interview. This is just for my idle curiosity. But I'm led to understand that there was a there was a church in Greenwood that has since been demolished. But if you go to where it was, there was essentially a concentric. There's like maybe two concentric circles or just there's maybe perhaps just a single circle of tombstones facing where it used to be. Do you know anything about this? Yeah. Kind of a, a game of telephone version of the story. So there was a church that was demolished, but it wasn't in Greenwood. It's um, it was on the Fulton mall where the, is it a Macy's? I can't remember. There's like a department store there now. And so that church was the um, a Dutch Reformed church, and it still exists. They're in Park Slope now. But they had a churchyard, and they bought that whole plot in Greenwood in, like, I want to say, like, the 1860s. I don't know if that is completely right. And so they, they moved all their headstones there. But I don't know why they chose to put them in a big circle, except that perhaps they took all the monuments and buried people in the center, because if you went to the whole effort of, relocating people you probably didn't put the extra effort to like then match up all these old corpses to their headstones so I think they're kind of just like linked in a general sense but yeah that's a that's actually where they did the dance performance a couple weekends ago because because it's an open space but they there are burials there but there aren't headstones you're oddly able to do like events there now (laughs) so it's a really strange I guess afterlife of that space that it went from like this old Dutch church that bought this space to move their graveyard a whole over go by. And then it's the one kind of uncrowded space in the cemetery that's trying to reimagine its programming, but they're like, Oh, well this is a perfect place for like a dance performance. And uh, I'm blanking on her name. The, the Bateau dancer I saw there like did this whole thing where she kind of like, washed the graves and rolled around in dirt and, and stuff. And I was like, Whoa. no one could ever have imagined that this would be the future when they probably bought this like in the 1800s. But yeah, so the church wasn't there, was demolished and they did buy that plot and they're not the only one. There's like, I know St. Anne's church also has a burial ground there that they bought and they were demolished. So there's a few other churches that when Rather than like what happened in James Walker Park where they just built stuff over, sometimes the church actually did go to lengths to buy a new burial plot somewhere. That is, that's wild. Actually, I'm still technically recording. Would it be okay if I like patch <laughs> that into the interview? Yeah, I, I wish I remembered all the dates in that story because it's, but that, but that is basically what happened is, and it was a, a win for both Greenwood and the church because like when, again, I could talk about cemeteries at length forever but when Greenwood opened it was like a new thing and so people weren't instantly like I gotta buy a plot here it's gonna be great so it helped them that these churches would buy like whole sections of the cemetery because they could make some money off that and then the church also had a dedicated burial space for people who still wanted to be buried as part of their church and I think that Greenwood 
there's a New York Times story, I'm pretty sure, about this. You can confirm it. But, like, I believe that they acquired that land again because they can't buy up any more land in the city around them because there are buildings on it. So they're kind of in this interesting moment of trying to find new burial space, like, within their own cemetery. And so they're looking at solutions like that now. But, yeah, it's a really, it's really fascinating. I also saw... Um, the band survive who does the stranger things theme like play there a few years ago. And it's weird. It's just weird how that space because of like how it was created then became this performance venue. And I'm not sure if that'll last after if people start being buried there again, but yeah, the, the life cycle of a cemetery is, is really interesting. So this is actually a very stupid sounding question, but I've, I, I've never gone through the process of putting together a will, so I, I, am, I am innocent of this. When you buy a grave plot, you do buy it basically in perpetuity, right? Like there isn't a sense that, that Greenwood could say like, well, the lease is up on this grave plot, right. so we're taking them out and putting somebody else in there. Yeah, in other countries, it does happen like that, though. So you will be like, well, you own this for... I don't know, 70 years, I'm making that up. But in the in Greenwood, it's like, yeah, you bought that and it's yours forever. So it's it's more of a challenge in cemeteries like that to get new space because that's that's owned by somebody. Yeah, but it, it is it's a it makes it really challenging when your cemetery fills up and Greenwood's lucky that they can do programming, they've got all this history stuff, but if you're a place that isn't that spectacularly beautiful that doesn't have all that doesn't have famous people buried there it is like a, a tough situation like once you run out of burial space like uh like what how do you make money because you can't resell those plots but yeah it's it's a it's a bad system <laughs> and that's yeah would a city so i presume that cemeteries have to pay property taxes because they're taking up space would a city ever foreclose on a on a cemetery is that a is that a, a thing yeah. that can happen if making money i wish i knew that's an interesting question i wish i knew more about there's um do you know mount mariah in philadelphia i i don't but... you should look it up it's like a cemetery that has effectively been abandoned because it's in this weird space of land that like no one wants to take it over and it's it's like as old as it's kind of from the same era as Greenwood, but it's completely overgrown because no one is taking care of it. Actually, like within New York Bayside that I mentioned, the synagogue that supposedly cares for it has neglected it. And so it got really terribly overgrown. There was really gruesome vandalism. And it wasn't until people started calling up the media directly and getting like news crews to show up and kind of shaming them that there was action taken and the city, I don't know, like at one point they can take over. That is like a, it's an interesting question I should look into. Cause I have, I have kind of tried to look into like city rules related to burials, but sometimes it's kind of astounding how there might not have been new rules since like the 19th century. Like I think, when I was researching um, uh, public burials, like one of the last rules for, uh, I'm 
doing this off the top of my head, so I can't remember it specifically, was, like, dated back to concerns about, like, people stealing bodies for medical dissection. So, like, despite the fact uh, all of us will die, there there isn't really as much attention to these places and to those regulations as you think there would be. Huh. That's, um... <laughs> to consider um, maybe when you consider cremation safe you know you're don't have to worry about your future unless you want to take up some space it's um it's more expensive to do that though i mean it i, I don't know there's something attractive about the idea that you can sort of be visited mm-hmm. um folks not that you're, you'll be conscious of it necessarily but also just the idea that at this time when i feel like there are just so many people who have lived and died it's very easy for a person to just kind of disappear into the abyss of you know no one's going to find you unless they're looking for you in the way that sort of the internet contains all the information conceivable but mm-hmm. if you don't if it doesn't show up in a search and no one thinks to do a search then the information might as well not be there at all it is nice the idea that like a cemetery places people in a sort of geographic way where you could very easily just stumble upon something you weren't looking for yeah. something that moment of recognition about you know oh they died in 1918 maybe it was the the plague you know that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah definitely and if writing for the internet has taught me anything just because i mean 10 years can go by and the publication is gone and you can't find anything so we might not be as digitally eternal as we think we are so like having that monument there yeah you are you're declaring like a memory in some way and i think like an interesting challenge going forward is like, how do you offer that to people without the same demand on space in a city? And I don't know if anyone's really like solved that yet. So people that are looking into that, I think will have an interesting path in terms of like all the things you mentioned with like regulations and just like comfort of what people want to do. And I think it's like weirdly exciting to see where this is all going. I don't know if it's going to change in my lifetime because I'm only in my thirties, but death practices move so slowly that to get Americans to suddenly change the whole system, I think will not happen overnight, but it will be interesting to see it develop because I think it has to. Thank you so much to Allison C. Meyer. I will put a link to her website in the show description. You should definitely check out those talks that she's going to do. And, you know, hopefully soon, She'll be able to do in-person cemetery tours, and you should go to those if you can, when those can return in a safer world to come that I am sure is just around the corner, at least on a geological scale. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. If you would like to support the show and get access to a small but growing library of Patreon-only material, by all means, pop over to patreon.com slash witchhassle and uh, and check it out and maybe throw a few bucks if you want to. No pressure. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, every little bit helps, but it's just nice that you, you gave the show a listen. And uh, before the show comes to an end, um, our chat about the dead and especially about the idea that the dead are sort of removed from our society they are abstracted and how this at least 
made me make a connection to the idea of like the zombie or zombie films in particular reminded me of a poem by um, a dear friend and one of my favorite poets, uh, Richard Deming, from his book Day for Night. And so I wanted to read a portion of that poem out for you. Um, the poem is called film threat and it's it's in three sections and each section is is an after is after a different person and there's sort of you know a, a long tradition in poetry of of doing poems after another poet with the idea of being that you're doing it after the style of another poet you're kind of embodying that but for these for the three sections of this poem uh richard deming did it after horror directors and so the first section is after george Romero, who was the the director behind the Night of the Living Dead movies. And so here's that that section of, of the poem, Film Threat, by Richard Deming. The survivors barricade a bay window with plywood, an old armoire, an empty refrigerator, and it is dark enough within to read by candlelight. Through a crack... You can see two eyes and a mouth in shadow and a night filled with intent, glittering teeth. What the image tells us, that the hunger of the zombie, however slow, does not sleep, that the cottage and everyone in it is surrounded by rage, and inside, no one will admit the possibility of cowardice allowed, even as the wine is decanted, the cream sauce simmers and Mendelssohn plays on a stereo somewhere in the background. But maybe we have it wrong. The dead do not hate the living. Love hates the dead for being dead, and again and again summons them back. One day, and soon, the boards will come down and the zombies will break in and devour everything in their path and yet someone will raise a shotgun and shoot the beloved who is no longer the beloved but something else some other wanton form that wears a recognizable face and someone in the audience will wonder if that is how we are meant to survive our memories So that was uh, the first section of the poem, Film Threat, in Richard Deming's collection, Day for Night. Um, Just a very stark and startling look at grief. Just a a real hammer to the the forehead of a poem. Uh, You should definitely check out uh, the collection it's in, Day for Night, and also perhaps uh, Richard Deming's first collection, um, Let's Not Call a Consequence, also very good um this has been witch hassle thank you for listening and uh i'll see you in the cemetery <laughs>